here in a minute, but I, I, I don't know. I've just come from an entirely different setting. Right? Lauren, your, your papa and I, we weren't on stages like this. There wasn't air conditioning like that. There was thatch huts and dirt floors and hungry hearts. We entered into a village. Brother Brent and, and JJ stepped out of the car. The little kids in the village have only seen Americans on TV. So when they saw some of these folks that are much bigger than the guys that are in the village, they thought that they were WWE wrestlers. <laughs> and it grew up loud. It's amazing what Jesus was And the crowd began to swell and it began to grow. And before long, we were in the house of a lone Christian, outnumbered, surrounded, faith small, but hope big. With tears in her eyes, the only English word she could say was so happy. So happy. So happy. Six men of God walked into her life and she kept saying, so happy. She didn't have a television. She barely had electricity. There was nothing of comfort in her house. It was a concrete floor. That's it. It was a room not as big as either of these closets. So happy. Oh my goodness, what does your happiness depend upon? You know, she was so happy. And the village crammed into her little house, an impromptu meeting. And one brother began to share with another his testimony. And the translation began to ring out. And before long, Methuselah's younger brother. I'm not sure what his name was, but I know that he couldn't walk. Hallelujah. Oh, have you ever had your faith put to the test? In one moment, surrounded by Hindu gods and Hindu people, just six Christians plus the one that invited them, seven in all. But the Lord showed up. And the man that walked in demonized, or rather was carried in demonized, his body went limp as we prayed for him, not once, but several times. And he began to groan and shake. And then suddenly, so happy, he started to walk. Got 
eternal dominion. I've seen it everywhere people have asked. I am so happy. Amen. I don't know why you came here today. I don't know what you expected to get, but I know what I intend to give. And I am so happy. We're not interested in neat little Bible confectionaries. Little bumper sticker kind of Christianity slogans, right? We want the pure, unadulterated power of God. I don't care what it takes to get it. I don't care how deep the Holy Ghost has to cut into my flesh to shove me into the narrow way. I am happy to go where He leads me. Amen. Are you happy to go with God this morning? on March 10th, 2013 is called Failure. What a strange thing to preach about. The Wikipedia defines failure as failure is the state or condition of not meeting a desirable or intended objective and may be viewed as the opposite of success. Why would I preach on such a thing? In my experience as a pastor, which is now approaching some 16 years. I don't think there's anything that Americans fear more than failure. We think it shows us weak. Maybe even worse than that, that it makes us worthless. If the fear is left unchecked in us, it results in paralysis. It has a way of shutting down God's desire for you. It has a way of squelching vision. It starts calculating cost. It starts determining whether or not you can or can't. When the scripture says, all things are possible for him who believes. The scripture says, with God, all things are possible. Turn with me to 1 John. We're going to be in the 4th chapter. We're going to pick up in the 16th verse. Hey David, could you put some monitor or something up here? I'm going to go horse here in a minute. 1 John 4, 16. There. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. What do you rely on, friends? And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Wherever, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in Him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like Him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Boy, that brings a couple questions to our minds with this. What do you rely on day in and day out? On what do you base your confidence? How do you make your calculation? Are you complete in love or are you fearful? In Luke, the first chapter, the 74th verse we see these words. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. This was John the Baptist's father. He was rejoicing over the birth of a son, a supernatural thing. Sterile people that couldn't have a child and God gave them a child and He knew that they were entering into a new age where God would rescue us from the hand of our enemies to enable us to serve Him without fear. We find it from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. Without fear, our God. 
wants us to serve Him. Look at Romans 8 in the 15th verse. Say there when you were there. There when you were there. Nobody's there? There. One of you there. Where are the rest of you? There. Come on now. I came 12,000 miles to preach to you today. Stay awake with me. Stay impassioned with me. The living God is worthy of all of your attention. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. What does fear make you? A slave. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Oh my goodness. What would you not do for a son? How much do you love a son? Fear will try to control you. Fear will tell you that if you don't do this, or you do do that, that it's the end. You'll be terrified of the results. How many people have had a vision? How many people have had a desire? And they've been talking about it for two decades. But they've never begun to even try to carry it out. Oh my goodness. What happens when good people do nothing? Evil prevails. Oh my goodness. The living God has born in you dreams, desires, visions that come from Him. And it takes a courageous man to grab hold of the truth of God. To go after it. Our God wants us to serve Him without fear. Look at 2 Timothy 1.7. This will be our last on this subject. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity. Oh, maybe we should read that again. What causes us to sit in seats and just be silent? What causes us to stand in a crowd and not speak up? What causes us to work in a workplace every day and not dare to make a difference? For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power. Come on now, say power with me. Power. Come on, say power with me. Power. Do we got any pseudo rednecks in here? Anybody that just wants more power? The first thing that I want to know when I see an engine is how many horsepower. If you tell me how many cubic inches, I just want to know how I can tweak it to get more horsepower out of it. I bought a chainsaw recently. I was really upset because it was nighttime and I was working my way through a log. In the city land sugar limits, my neighbors loved me. And I saw sparks, and then fire, and then smoke, and then I stopped cutting. I was really disappointed what's wrong with my chainsaw. So I thought I hit a nail, right? And you know, there's only one real response to failure. And that's get it harder. Use more power. So I put another chain on the chainsaw. I rubbed it a little louder and a little longer. I worked my way through another six inches of the log, and there were sparks and fire. I went to bed depressed that evening. What's wrong with this chainsaw? I don't think that make a bigger model. What am I going to do? The next morning in the light of the sun, I realized that somebody years before I got to this house had poured concrete into the center of the street. It had a hollow base. And they didn't want it to fall over, and they filled it with concrete. And I was cutting through feet of concrete. More power. I don't know what you have to go through, saints. I don't know what it is that the Lord wants to cut through in you. 
But I know he has the power to do it if we will not be timid. Amen. You know, it is a strange thing to step off of an airplane in a country where you don't know the language, where you don't like the food, where everything looks different. Have you seen a shovel made in India, friends? You could never dream. You wouldn't recognize it if I told you what it was before I told you. I mean, before you saw it, it just, everything is different. What gives you the right to go instruct these people who worship a million gods in anything? Oh, he didn't give you timidity. He gave you power. He put his spirit in us and the love of God and of self-discipline. We teach people the grace of God, which says, say no to ungodliness. I encourage you this morning that if you feel fear creep up into your life, if you feel powerless, if you feel helpless, you've been listening to the enemy. He says these things because if he can disarm you, then you are not dangerous to him. But God called you to be armed with power. You know, it doesn't matter if you possess something. If you don't know it's there, it's not much use to you. Too often the church is mute. It's deaf. It's blind. It has no idea what it actually has. But let there be revival and an awakening occurs. You begin to believe that when you pray for an old man, he will stand up. You begin to believe that when you pray for deaf ears, they will open. You begin to believe, and guess what? You begin to receive. Amen. Either God is true or He's not. Amen. Either every word that comes from His mouth is flawless and refined seven times over or it's not. Amen. I, for one, have learned to trust in the Word of God. Most of the morning we're going to be looking at Peter. We're going to look at Peter's life. We're going to see what Peter was about. We're going to probably learn a few things you didn't know about Peter. Before we do that, I want to see something that Peter said. Look at 1 Peter. You'll be in the 5th chapter and the 8th verse. Say there when you were there. Now we put scriptures on a screen in here for those of you that are struggling to find it. But there is no substitute for a personal relationship, not just with the Lord, but with the book that He gave you. You need to learn to interact with it. You need to learn to have the Word come off the page for you. I hope that your love of the Word and your daily interaction with it will result in a familiarity with it. So that when you're in trouble, you'll actually see the pages in your Bible and remember the time that He first spoke a promise to you. My hope is that you will have a relationship with the book and the God of the book. If that sounds strange to you, all I can tell you is that for 20 years of my life, He's ministered to me out of the pages of this Bible. And it has never let me down. I love it. I pray over it. I cry. I get nervous if you pick up my Bible because you won't hold it and treat it with the same care that I would. I'm protective of it. Mine happens to be an NIV. Some in here use New American Standard. A few of you use New King James. If you're using the King James Version, we'll tell you what it means later. <laughs> Suffer us not to have an explanation this morning. I love the Word of God. And I hope that you do. It's the only thing of real value that you possess. I can assure you that. 
Are you in 1 Peter 5? Yes. Here comes the 8th verse. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, I've been to Africa, and I can tell you there's a difference between seeing lions on TV and seeing them in person. And you say, oh, pastor, I've seen them at the zoo. Oh, it's all too comforting to have those bars between you and them, and usually a moat and a fence as well. But it is an entirely different thing to be looking at a lion right there and know that you can't outrun it. You're not likely to be over, able to overpower it. It is an interesting thing. There is something that is like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Is that encouraging? Not at all. Why would we start in a place like that? I'd like to tell you that there is real danger. There is a real enemy. He's, he's not the personification of evil just as a literary device. He's not just um, something that you tell children stories about like the boogeyman to scare people. The Bible presents a real, literal devil who to many is very much like a lion. He's a devourer. But when Peter said this, he didn't just pull it out of the air. It came from a place in your Bible that you can find called 2 Kings. Tell me when you get to 2 Kings. You'll be in the 17th chapter. Amen. And we're going to start in the 17th chapter around the 24th verse. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Seraphim. And settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. Did you know that there is a wicked king who would like to replace you? He's not real happy about the sons of God being in the place that the sons of God are supposed to be. Doing what the sons of God are supposed to be doing. He would like to replace you. He would like to take over the area that you live in. He would like very much to shut you up. At this time in Israel's history, the Assyrian armies have come into Israel. They've conquered all ten northern tribes. They have carried the people of God out of the land so that God's promise to a specific people group could not occur. Did you know that the enemy was interested in stopping the promise in your life? He then took people and put them in the land that were not born there. He took people and put them in the land that did not know what the customs of the land were. It says it this way in 25. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So he sent lions among them. And they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. Who was in danger of the lions, friends? Those who did not know what the God of the land requires. He has sent lions among them which are killing them off because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order, have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. 
So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Do you know what happened when they knew how to worship and when they knew what God required? The lions had no power over them. The lions were suddenly just one of many predators that are not truly a threat to a man. When we do not know what God requires, when we are not in worship of the living God, when that is not what our life is about, then there is a devil seeking whom he may devour. He is like, but is not. He is like, but is not a roaring lion. Say, well, I've seen him tear up many lives. Well, let's take an honest account. If he's able to tear up a life, it's because they were not doing what God told them to do. They were not worshiping the Lord like they're supposed to worship the Lord. Say, so wait a minute, Pastor. Are you saying then that all of this is our fault? When a man is submitted to the hand of God, then whatever happens to him happens under the hand of God. And it is not destruction, it's construction. It's not something meant to destroy you, it's something meant to build you up. But as soon as you step out of the hand of God, there is an enemy that is waiting there. And he's devoured many lives. The truth is he should be no threat to us. He should be absolutely toothless, fainless to us. He only represents a threat if we're not where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to be doing, walking with and worshiping the Lord. Oh my goodness, maybe we can look in the rearview mirror then see how we pierced ourselves with many griefs. You know, Achan bore a terrible price. And not just Achan, but his wife and his children, even the family <coughs> pets. But it was because he was somewhere he should not have been doing something he should not have been doing. God had given them victory, but he made himself liable for destruction. My hope is this morning as we preach, as we talk, we will look and see that the devil holds no threat for the man who is walking in God's will. But if we are outside of God's will, you've harmed yourself, friends, before he ever gets to you. How many of you want to walk in the Lord's will this morning? Come on, how many of you love Jesus this morning? How many of you could just say to the heavens now, Lord, help me get right. Help me get right, mighty God. Look. Proverbs 28.15 says, Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is the wicked man ruling over a helpless people. Oh, Jesus. Have you ever seen a bear charge? I was talking with Steve while we were on a plane. Steve Bartlett. He spent some time in bear country. You know, the ones we had in Louisiana, black bears. You could see them from a distance and you might even remember movies that you saw about bears in the 70s, right? This looks friendly. It looks like it's over there eating berries. Of course, if you see a 2,500-pound polar bear that can outswim you, can outrun you, outclimb you, and he likes to eat things bigger than you, that's an entirely different feeling, isn't it? Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked man ruling over a helpless people. If we leave the masses out there helpless, if we don't tell them what God requires, if we don't teach them to worship the Lord, it is like putting children in the cage of a lion. It is like putting children before a bear. 
We have a responsibility because we are not to be helpless. If you know what God requires, if you're firmly placed under His hand, worshiping Him, these things are no threat to you. But who is being devoured by them? Am I the only one in here that has a family that's been ravaged by lions and bears? Who has a responsibility to go to them? We do. The church of today is self-centered. The church of today sits and talks like a book club about what has blessed us the most. We're so sure that Jesus loves us more than anyone else in any other generation that He wants us to do nothing and be rewarded to the hilt for it. Every other generation has felt a responsibility to go to the lost. A responsibility to go help those who are helpless. Did you know that the gospel is for the poor? Jesus preached. He preached from the words of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. Come on, speak to me this morning. Good news to the poor. There's more than one way to be poor, friend. Hey, you could have all of the money in Germany. But if you were in East Germany when it fell, what good was it? Wheelbarrows full could not buy bread. You can have everything you think you need, but be poor in God's economy. All we need to do is look at the churches of the first century in the book of Revelation. And he said it to them. You think yourself rich, but you are naked, blind, and poor. We're not ignorant. We know how to worship. We know what God requires. We're not helpless. We will not be devoured if we stand firm in the love of God and the purpose of God. Winston Churchill is one of my favorite historical figures. I love him. He was a, a drunkard. He was a man that in many ways there was nothing reputable about. And yet God used him mightily. In fact, we're not speaking German today. Largely because he had British grit, if you will. And one of the things that Winston Churchill said is success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. I want to tell you that nobody has ever accomplished anything for God by sitting on their salvation. Nobody has ever gone out and done anything for the Lord while sitting on their hands in a church. It all begins with believing that God has called you to overcome the evil one. That the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work and you are working for the Son of God. And as you step out to venture, as you step out to try, you are bound to stumble along the way. So often we're scared of failure that we don't even begin to try. As I began to think about this subject, I couldn't help but think about Peter. Did you know that in the New Testament alone, just the New Testament, not the word Cephas, not the word Simon, just the word Peter, appears 176 times? I want to give you an idea of how many times that is. We know that Peter, James, John, these are reported to be the pillars, right? This is the inner circle of Jesus' twelve. James, John, these two men. When we look at their names in the Newer Testament, keeping in mind that John is the name of several men in the New Testament, we only find the word John 52 times. 176 Peter, not including all the derivatives of his name, we find John, whom is the name of many people in the Bible, 52 times. We find James 42 times. 
James and John, when combined in all of their various names, still don't rise to be mentioned as many times as Peter in the Word. That's interesting. Peter has a place of prominence in the Scripture above and beyond the other apostles. Did you know that in every place in the Synoptic Gospels where the twelve disciples are listed, Peter's mentioned first? Do you find that strange, anyone? There's a reason for this, and we can learn from his life. I love to study Peter for a lot of reasons. Turn with me to Numbers. We're going to be in the 13th chapter. Say there when you're there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Numbers 13, there when you were there. Come on, there when you were there. In the 13th chapter of Numbers, we find the beginning of a Jewish tradition which Jesus kept. Numbers 13 is about sending out 12 spies to go into the land of Canaan, to search out the land of Canaan and bring back a report. When we look at Numbers 13, in the 8th verse, it says, From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. He was the representative to the tribe of Ephraim, sent out by Moses to explore the land. And he doesn't go down in history as Hoshea, which means salvation. He goes down according to verse 16 as this. These are the names of the men Moses sent out to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. If you were to put the Hebrew word Joshua into a Greek text, it would be Jesus. It means the same thing. There is a rabbinic tradition. And the tradition is this. If you're going to begin to change the world, you have to start with something called Talmudim. Disciples. You're going to have to teach disciples what you know so that you can multiply out what God is doing on the earth. It never rested on a single man, ever, not at any time. One man's responsibility was to spread the goodness of God to other men around the world. Psalm 78 says one generation telling the next generation. This was the plan of God. So the rabbis then would take upon themselves disciples. But among the disciples, they would pick a special one. One that they thought had potential to be just like them. One that usually was a little older than the others. One to be a leading disciple. In Hebrew, this is called the Hakkam. What this means is this disciple would walk right next to the master. And he would be an example to his peers. Are you following me so far? Yes. One of the ways that you would distinguish him from the others is you would use him as an example. You would allow in your teachings him to be a focal point, whether he succeeded or failed for the others to learn from. That's a difficult role, isn't it? You might also set him apart with your affection by giving him a special name. So if someone's name was Simon, you might call him Peter. If it was Hoshea, you might call him Joshua. It would be a way to say, this guy is special to me. Y'all keep an eye on him. Peter held this role in Jesus', Jesus life. You can see it in the ways that he shows up as a leader in the Scripture. I'm going to give you some examples of Peter as a leader in the Scripture. In Luke 5, 8, he's the first among his companions to boldly repent. Jesus tells them to cast their net on a certain side of the boat, and when they do, they catch fish. How many of you know that you can work at something your whole life and never succeed? But with one word of direction from Jesus, he'll change everything. Peter's response to this, although he had companions there, 
was to fall on his face before Jesus and repent. He was the first to show that kind of leadership. What do you honor men for? For speaking well? How many of you honor a pastor for repenting well? We're so scared of failure, so worried about being defined by failure that we don't tolerate failure in anyone we know. But when Jesus raised up an example for his peers, it was a man whose life was often defined by failure. Do you find that at all odd? It turns out that in our failures, these are the times that we are most pliable before God. The times we're most usable to Him. The time when it's most obvious that we're made of clay and He's made of something divine. In John 6, 66 through 69, Jesus asked the twelve a question. You want to leave? Are you going to leave me too? Peter is the first to answer the question, although it is Jesus that asked all of them. Since from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, Jesus asked the twelve. Who did Jesus ask? Twelve. The twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus asked all twelve, but who spoke up? What's wrong with y'all this morning? I need to come out there and sit with you. Uh, what, what's, what's happening? Who spoke up? Peter. Who spoke up? Peter. Come on now, we're going to wake up in the house of God. Who spoke up? Peter. Come on, help me out. Who spoke up? Peter. Peter spoke up. So when Jesus asked the question to 12, one man stood up and spoke. One did. Is that leadership? Yes. I would say that's leadership. By the time we get to Matthew 16, Jesus asked, who do men say that the Son of Man is? Some said this, some said that, and Jesus turned that laser-like focus upon the twelve, and he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? You know who spoke up? But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. By the time we get to Matthew 14, 26, Everybody is in a boat. They're all terrified. All 12 are there. Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come and I'll come to you. Jesus says, come. Who steps out of the boat? In Matthew 26, all 12 disciples. This is Matthew 26, 40. All 12 are in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. They all fall asleep. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. All twelve sleeping. Could you man not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. If you were Peter, would you feel like that was a little unfair? <laughs> Come on now, answer me. This is not saying you're the stage. Would you feel like that's unfair? Yeah. It turns out that the most corrected among us are the ones that the Lord loves and treats like a son. See, this is a chance for Peter to have Holy Ghost renovation to his character. How do you feel when you are correct? In John 18, 10, it is Peter who strikes with a sword and cuts off a man's ear. Would you say that that's something that's godly? He led whether he was right or not, but he was a leader. In John 23 through 8, Peter is the first to take off and run to the tomb. He wanted to know if the story was true. 
In John 21, 7 through 11, Jesus is on the shore. All the disciples can see him. John is the first to recognize it's Jesus. But who threw off his garments and dove in the water and swam? Are you beginning to get an idea for Peter's personality? He sometimes leaped without looking. He sometimes stepped out while the others stepped back. He sometimes spoke up when everybody else shut up. He gave people plenty of reasons to not like him. But the Lord picked him, didn't he? The Lord picked him because the Lord loved him. The Lord picked him because he would use him as an example for the rest of us. You know, Peter is not just a leader. Peter has some of the most catastrophic failures in all of the Bible. I don't, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you feel like you have failed. Let us just walk in Peter's shoes for a minute as Jesus' lead disciple. In Matthew 14, 30, we know he stepped out of the boat. How did that story end? He sank. In Matthew 16, through 23, we know that he had just declared that Jesus was the Christ, but how does the story end? Jesus rebukes him for being used of Satan and saying that he would not go to a cross. In John 13, 8, Peter refused to let Jesus wash his feet. In Matthew 26, 40-43, we already said he was asleep during Jesus' last hours before the crucifixion. In John 18, 10, I told you you already cut off a man's ear. In Galatians 2, 11 through 14, Peter goes down in the scripture as an example of a supreme hypocrite. Oh my goodness, have you ever had anybody say something bad about you? You know, that's one of those questions that when I ask, I, I know the answer, right? And in today's world, they don't just say it, do they? Where, where do they write it? Come on, girls, where do they write it? They put it on Facebook, right? It's not enough anymore to pass a note in class. Now we put it on the electronic billboard for the whole world to see. How does that feel? Can you imagine that in the most well-known book of all time, in the bestseller of all time, a book that has been distributed more than any other literature in the history of man, more than all other pieces of literature combined, Harry Potter does not come close. What if you were written down and rebuked for the whole world to see? How would you feel about that? Would you maybe be mad at Paul for writing Galatians? Would you might want to write a follow-up letter to let everybody know the extenuating circumstances surrounding it? Oh, come on, a little private message to Mr. Paul, right? I don't know why you put those things about me on your Facebook. They're obviously not true, and blah, 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 blah. And you know, and you know, you know, he had nothing good but to say about Paul. In Peter's letters, he called Paul's writing scripture. He said that ignorant men twisted them as they do the other scriptures. He worked with Paul and considered Paul a co-laborer. How do you learn something like that? How do you get so confident in your position in Christ? that others can tear you down and it does not hurt you. John 18 is maybe the place to read. Turn with me there. Say there when you're there. Wow, thank you, Catherine. 
You know, we had to preach through multiple interpreters in India. Maybe Brother Bartlett would preach and then Adam would convert it to Tamil. And then one of the local dialects would take it from there into an Indian language. Maybe, maybe one of the Agulas tribes. And you know, even through two levels of interpretation, the people knew how to respond when you asked a question. And now we're here in our home church and you're sleeping. You know, for me right now, it's about 1230 at night. I'm strangely thinking about sleep. Saints, did you come here because you wanted something today? Because I'm doing my best to give it to you. Amen. I hope you didn't come just to get out of the rain or just to grab some food or just to soothe your religious conscience. Because all of those things fade away in time. But it's possible that God brought you here for a divine appointment. It's possible that he deposited a word in another man's heart that he intended for you. You know, when he wants to do something on the earth, he doesn't send an angel to do it. He sends a man anointed of his spirit. We are his hands and feet. We are his body. If he wants to say something to you, he's likely to use another man to do it. And he's likely to use God's own word to do it. So let me ask you, if he were here speaking with you today, would you be like I bet not, huh? So look, I'm asking for something. I'm your pastor. I can stop and do this. We, we, we can stop in 30 minutes and talk about it if you want. I'm just asking that you would show some interest in what the Lord's doing. Is that all right? Somebody say, Pastor, I'm interested. Pastor, I'm interested. Oh, my God, that's much better. See, the Lord corrects those He loves. In John 18, watch this. Starting in verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because the disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back and spoke to the girl on duty, and they brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. I was cold, and the, it was cold, and the servants and the officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. By the way, Jesus is being questioned by the high priest while Peter is denying that he's a disciple. Look at verse 25. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he asked, You are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Yeah. Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the rooster began to crow. Oh, my goodness, saints. It's at this moment that something happens to Peter that has never happened before. You remember it's Peter that had declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. He boasted, he promised, he pledged, he made his commitment before all of his brothers. He had been the example to the others, and he said, even if they all fall away, I will not. And what does he find himself doing? Denying Jesus. In Romans 7, the 18th verse, we hear the words of Paul, and Peter is about to know what they mean before they're written. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For the first time in Peter's life, he's at the lowest place that a human being can be. 
Could you fail Jesus any more dramatically? Could you have denied him any more thoroughly? Oh my goodness. The day Jesus was crucified, there was another death in a matter of speaking. Peter. See, he had left everything to follow Jesus. How many of you have risen to that level? He left everything to follow Jesus. He had spent three years with Jesus, day and night, with Jesus. Come on, say that's worth something. Do you think Peter loved Jesus? Yes. Oh, he loved Jesus. Even when he loved him and was motivated to do the wrong things, striking a man with a sword, rebuking him, saying, you'll never go to the cross. It was because he loved him. But he had so little of the character of Christ in So little of the spirit of Christ in That be where many of us are today. We've been familiar with his teaching. We've tried to spend time with him. We genuinely do love him. But the Lord allows you to come to a place where you realize there's almost nothing in me that is like me. See, Peter had been very confident. Jesus picked him. He was a natural leader. I've never known a man like that. Even when he was wrong, he was persuasive like he was right. What a dangerous human being. And the Lord loved him. So he announced to him ahead of time, Satan's going to sit you, Peter, that I prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen the flock. During Jesus' crucifixion, Peter learns what Matthew 16, 24 is talking about. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross and we follow him. It's the first time in his life he probably did not feel all that capable. Come on, you don't have to stretch very far to wonder what Peter was considering during that time, huh? What did Judas do during those three days? Judas was planning his own execution of himself, suicide. How low did Peter fall? He fell to a place that the Bible calls poverty of spirit. Where a man is crushed inside, where he's broken inside, but where God would never despise him. Peter became intimately aware in the midst of this failure how much he desperately needed the Lord. See, before that, it could have been easy to think maybe the Lord needed Peter, needed Peter to protect him, needed Peter to direct him, needed Peter to work for him, needed, needed, needed. Peter. But now all of a sudden, what does Peter have to offer? He's denied his Lord and Sovereign three times before the whole world. And at a moment where Jesus is being crucified, something is dying inside of Peter. Americans hate failure. We work so hard to avoid it. But I would submit to you that this is Peter's turning point. How low Peter was during those three days. How crucified with Christ he was. Poverty of spirit, broken and contrite. For the first time Peter was a sinner in need of a Savior. What are you this morning? Does Jesus need you? Are you here to help Jesus? 
Are you here to protect Jesus? Or when comparing your nature with His, are you so broken at the disparity between the two that you can't do anything except cry out and say, Lord, I need you to save me. See, Peter led more than any other. Peter was corrected more than any other, and Peter failed bigger than any other. Perhaps that's why Peter becomes the most useful. Turn with me to Romans 5. Say there when you were there. I would like to remind you of one of the beautiful things in the gospel. Failure has a way of showing us something. Reminding us of something. Here comes Romans 5 in the 6th verse. You see at just the right time. When we will still. Powerless. Oh that is such a yucky word. You know Americans have a hard time traveling at the mission field. They want to bring knives. They want to bring guns. They want to bring wads of money. They want to be better prepared than anyone else in the world. In fact, it's quite an embarrassing thing to be in a jungle somewhere in South America and maybe you have the nicest hiking boots that money can buy. And you've got the nicest backpack that you can be outfitted with. And you've got that real fancy mag light, right? And you've got a little magnesium stick to start fires. And you've got freeze-dried food because God knows you couldn't make it a week without food. You've got water purification units, anything that you can carry. And then you look over and you see a woman seven months pregnant, barefooted, hiking up a hill and traversing a stream wearing nothing but a gown. You know, when Jesus sent out the disciples, he didn't send them out that way. He didn't allow them to take a money bag. He didn't allow them to take a sword. You know what they got to take with them? The Word of God. And they learned that it was enough. When did the Word of God appear to you? You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Where were you when He died for you? Sinner. And it is in the lowest moment of your failure, having tried to venture something for him, and shown to be a failure before the whole world, that you realize there's nothing of value in you that he didn't put there. Hallelujah. You become a sinner in need of a Savior. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of a son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Let me ask you a question, friends. If you paid a very high price for something, and when you bought it, it was a wreck, and you've been working on it, you've been restoring it, you've been fixing it up, and you've been showing it off to your friends, do you love it more than or less than? He didn't bring you this far to abandon you now. Why do we fear failure? Amen. You know why we fear it? It's because it shows who we really are. It shows that we're the sinner in need of this instruction. It shows that we're bankrupt of anything good except what he's put there. It shows that we're completely dependent upon him. You know a great question to ask yourself right now? 
When is the last time you had to go fall on your knees before a brother and say, I'm sorry. I sinned. I sinned against you and I sinned against God. When was the moment that you died with Jesus? When did you come to the place where you said, nothing dwells in me? In this nation, we've been told that salvation is when you want His help in this life and heaven in the next. When you're a pretty good old boy who now knows about Jesus and prayed a magic prayer at an altar, and I tell you, it is a load of manure. There is nothing in it that's true. Salvation is when you're so crushed in your spirit that you realize who you are for the first time in your life. That spending time with Jesus was not enough. That loving Jesus was not enough. That leaving everything for Him was not enough. You were still utterly bankrupt in your heart. Unless He deposits something of heaven. Amen. What you have will be worth everything. Yes. Oh my. The faith that it took for Peter to carry on. The courage that it took for Peter to carry on. You know, when we hear the word of God, Peter says something. We have the promises of the prophets now made more certain. How on earth could Peter say we have them now made more certain? Well, Peter stood there on a day before the Spirit of God had been poured out. But he believed that when Jesus said, if you wait in Jerusalem, you will receive power. And he received it. Now you can look backwards and see that he received it. You can look to your left and right and see that they received it. You have the word of God made more certain. But when Peter heard the words, they had never seen it done. Maybe he was coming from such a place of brokenness in his heart. Such a place of, place of emptiness. That all they had was the promise of God. What do you rely on, friends? On what do you place your confidence? Do you have a complete love for Him that says He knows exactly who I am and He loves me anyway? Mm. I found out that Americans are quick to say God knows me, but they don't really know themselves. When we started this message, we wanted to know where your confidence was. We wanted to know whether your love was complete. Here's what Brother Paul learned on the subject. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We'll be in the first chapter and we will camp there for a minute. There. There. Here comes the 8th verse. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers about the hardships we suffered in the providence of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Oh my goodness, if it's beyond your ability to endure, what are you in danger of doing? Failing. So that we despaired even of life. I would say that's beyond depressed, wouldn't you? Despairing of life. This is like Job, where he could curse the day he was born. Broken. Sentence of death in their hearts. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. On what do we place our hopes, saints? On what do we rely? In what way did you experience the Lord? Today we say if you come to an altar,
have been touched by God. Except it's not true. And it's never been true. And the numbers prove it. You can have a million people and a hundred thousand of them come down. But two years later, they are not serving the Lord. Something's wrong. You know what's wrong? You cannot jump straight to the resurrection without having personally experienced your crucifixion. Amen. You have to get to a place where it's beyond your ability to endure, where you despair of life and the death sentence has been issued in your heart. Yep. This is the moment that saving grace enters your heart and teaches you to say no to that which was killing you. Teaches you to cling to the Savior. Teaches you that there's nothing of worth in you except what He puts in some you cry out like David. Creator longs for the creature that his hands have made. And he meets you in that broken place. Read the Beatitudes that our brother so eloquently preached about. Tell me I'm lying. This is how you see God. You have to be so broken. You have to be so poor in your spirit that he begins to create in you something that's pure in heart. Yeah. And if he didn't create it, it wouldn't be there. And then you begin to see what he's like because he remakes your life right before your eyes. While you're in 2 Corinthians, turn the page and be in the third chapter with me. And in the third chapter, then scan down to the fourth verse. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are confident in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our confidence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. According to God's character, you should die. Having walked with Jesus three years, having left everything to follow Jesus, having loved Jesus, He was still not like Jesus. At the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, Peter gets a death sentence. But when the Holy Ghost entered his heart and mind and life, something new was born. Amen. A competency that was not built upon his ability. A competency that did not come from his talent, his charisma, his passion. It was born of God like being born again. Mm -hmm born from above, if you would like. Our brother Paul experienced this not once, but many times in his life. Every time you ever got to the end of your rope where there was nothing left except Jesus, but he rescued you, he is testifying to his own nature. He loves you. Perfect love drives out fear. Why do Americans fear failure? Because we have not loved the Son. If we don't love the Son, we do not have the Father. And if we love the Son, we obey Him and walk in His commands. And you could never do it unless you loved Him. Come on, saints. Who needs the Son? I would like to tell you a couple more things. Failure should be our teacher, not our undertaker. Some of you have failed so badly 
that you believe your life is over. The devil is right there telling you that you are helpless, that you are powerless. He's always lying. He's always doing that. He wants to replace you. He wants to rule over you. He wants to be a roaring lion to you. Yes. But what does God require of you, old man? He simply wants you to walk humbly, to love mercy, to act justly, to cry out to Him for His nature. And then the devil will not rule over you. Amen. Failure is delayed, but it is not defeat. This did not end Peter's career. This did not forever mark Peter as the failure of God, the one who couldn't make it. In fact, it is the launching place for what God intended to do in him. Failure is a temporary detour. It is not a dead-end street. One writer said it this way, failure is the inevitable price of trying to do something. And Peter tried. And in his trying, he found the end of himself and the beginning of God's working in him. Failure is death with Christ so that you can be resurrected in the love of Christ. How many of you can honestly come to terms with your failure? The most disgusting thing about leaving the country and coming back is that when you're out of the country and you're speaking to those for whom the gospel is especially designed, the brokenhearted, the poor in spirit. They know their great need. They are so happy just to have you walk into their house. But in America, you have to convince people that they're guilty. You have to convince them that they have need. They are so scared of failure that they can't even be honest with themselves that they've already failed. There was a people like this. John came preaching to them. John came preaching to them and John's father, Zechariah, said that it was so that they could serve God without fear. And the first words out of his mouth were repent. The kingdom is at hand. Repentance is the acknowledgement that you have failed to do God's will. That you have failed to seek Him first. That you have failed to carry out the character of God. And the desire to change everything. Oh, it is the beginning of love. I think it's not fair to leave this story about Peter there. Turn with me to Acts 15. Tell me when you're there. You're in the wrong place. Now go to Acts 5. I repent. Now seems an appropriate time for me to tell you how I got the Bible that I'm now holding. I want to freely confess that I'm absolutely no debate, no, no, no match for Pastor Bartlett when placed in a debate. The truth is that even when supporting a position that he doesn't hold near his heart, he's just having a good time with me. I'm out of God. I love it. It's exciting. It reminds me of uh, many of my friends from former years that are not with us anymore. So he's given me a hard time about the King James Bible. 
See, it seems that when you go into other countries, they took the King James Bible and they translated it into their own tongue, which is what any man has to do if you own a King James Bible, even if you're English. <laughs> and when this happened, Brother Bartlett's learned through many years of preaching that it's best to take the King James Bible because your translators will be able to translate it better. So he's given me a hard time about the NIV pretty regularly. I didn't know what else to say. We got to a bookstore where we were going to look for a few jewels in the faith that maybe the British left behind in India, and there had been a fire the day before. The bank next to the bookstore had caught on fire and burned nearly to the ground. There was smoke and soot all over the bookstore, and they told our host that we could not come in, so I went in anyway. <laughs> then they told us that we could not buy books, so I began to look anyway. Then the manager came over and said, you don't understand, it won't be possible to purchase something. And I said, yes, thank you very much, I'd like to see that one. And as we looked in the center of this burned down bookstore, there was a wide margin, Zondervan and IV with red letters <laughs> crawling to me. We had recently looked, Brother Hutchinson and I, for these Bibles which no longer exist in the United States. And even the used copy on eBay is nearly $200 with writing already in it. And this one was less than $30. It was like a divine sign. <laughs> oh. So, of course, I brought it to the counter where they told me I could not buy it. And I said, I came 12,000 miles just to buy this book. <laughs> so they sold us that book and many others. I love my Bible. Amen. In the Bible, in the fifth chapter of Acts, I find this story. It's the 12th verse. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits. What's that next phrase say? And all of them were healed. Where do you develop a character that can stand that kind of power? Where on earth do you develop the kind of heart that can have your shadow heal people, but you not go sell books for $19.99? You not lift yourself up as the next pontiff? You are a low, humble servant of the Lord that can be written about in Galatians as a hypocrite and thank the man who wrote it. You find it at the cross of Calvary, my friends. You find it when you are crucified with Christ and Christ is crucified with you. Are you hearing me this morning? Yes. Peter found the character of God in the circumcision of his own heart. He found it when everything was cut away and nothing was left except Jesus. Will you die in Christ that you might reign with Him? Now some of you are theologians. Some of you have been in church so long 
and with Jesus. How does your character relate to this? Are you growing? Is your walk defined by power? Are you growing in the likeness of God daily? I found five things in Peter, and they're the last five things that I'm going to share with you. You can turn to 1 Peter in the first chapter, and we will find one from each chapter in Peter. What could you learn from a man who had died with Christ? Oh, you can learn to reign with Christ. You can learn to be resurrected in Christ. You can learn what it is to have an experience with God that is lifelong. The emptying of you and the filling with Him. In the first chapter, the first verse, I'm sorry, first chapter and eighth verse, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Oh my goodness. For you are receiving the goal of your faith. You are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter walked with an eternal perspective. Peter walked around knowing that he was receiving something from God. Having been emptied of everything, all he had is what God was giving him. And he had the assurance in his heart that the Lord loved him, died for him. And was presently in the act of saving. Amen. Hallelujah. Oh my goodness, who is receiving salvation today? In America, we have viewed it as an event a long time ago. And I tell you, something is wrong with this view. It is not a birthday that you had when you were eight. It is something that we are now presently receiving daily. Yep. Or you do not have it at all. We did not breathe once a long time ago at our first breath. We breathe to this day. It is the mark of life inside of us. And if you are saved, then you are receiving salvation today, tomorrow, the day after, until the day you stand to meet him. In the second chapter of Peter, we find another truth. It is the second chapter and second verse. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Oh, what grace is there in growing up in your salvation? Yesterday, broken down four or five miles off of the road and without water and jet lag and any other excuse that would make me feel better about it, I had a bad attitude. I know that that particular malady has never touched you. But for those of us that often fail, it was a moment of failure. I had to get out of the Jeep that was no longer running, walk off in the woods like Moses with the tablets. I had to go examine God's character and mine and what to do about the great gulf between the two. I remember the words of Peter. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. And I found joy in it. How? Why? Oh, I wasn't where I needed to be. But praise God, I'm still growing. I will not let somebody define. 
me in the past. Because if it happened to me in the past and it was a done deal, then what about today? We are still growing, saints. And when you make a mistake, you can say, oh, praise God, I will grow beyond this tomorrow. The character of Christ is still being formed in me. I am receiving salvation. I am growing in that salvation. In the third chapter, the 13th verse, we find these words. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. We find in Peter a fearless heart. Having been filled with the Holy Ghost, he stands and tells men that he had previously hidden from. Listen to me, men of Israel. You killed the author of life. What a bold thing. Once he was not Lord of his life and Christ was, he no longer had the right to choose his words based on his own prerogative. He, like Jesus, said when he heard his father saying, he did what he saw his father doing. And apparently sometimes the father's shadow heals. Doesn't Psalm 91 say, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. See, I can quote King James if I have to, Brother Carl. I want you to hear this. Peter was receiving his salvation. Peter was growing in his salvation. Peter was no longer afraid. Jesus was Lord. The Lord loved him in his lowest moment. What could separate him from the love of God? Height, depth. What could separate him? Angels? Demons? What could separate him? All the riches of God's love. He had a revelation. Something was born in his heart and it freed him from fear. Failure was not a part of the equation anymore. Only resurrection power. In the fourth chapter, the first verse. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Peter was armed with attitude. Peter had died with Jesus to sin. You cannot walk with God and walk in sin. You cannot walk in darkness and claim to be in the light. Let us be honest about our failure. You left everything. You love Him. You try to walk with Him. And yet you are walking in darkness. You do not have Him. How many brag to their friends? I once ate on the mountainside with Jesus. I was there for his first sermon. How many said, I saw him heal the widow of Nain's son? How many knew all about Jesus, but he did not reside inside of them? How do we know that we love him, friends? We obey his commands. Oh, could we be honest about our failures? 
Peter was honest, and so he received mercy. Peter was filled with power because he was ready to admit that he had none of his own. Died to sin. From the fifth chapter of Peter, the sixth verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. You get free from the fear of failure when you're under God's hand. You can have patience. I sit at the foot of the table now, but I'm under God's hands. And if he desires it, he will move me up because I'm in his hand. You can say, whatever my circumstances today, it may be dark, I may have stumbled. But my God will make light break forth for me because I'm in his hand. I ask you, saints, are you in his hands today? Are you still carrying your anxieties, your failure, and your sin because you are not in His hands? Do your hearts condemn you in His presence now? You don't teach it. You go to church. Maybe you sold everything and went to a foreign country. But what does His Spirit tell you now? See, at the end of this whole thing, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom. Who enters the kingdom, saints? But only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Yeah. I have but one motive, one goal, one desire, that I would do the will of God, and I have to admit something to you. I am wholly incapable of doing it. Unless he puts inside of me a spirit to obey, a power to obey. His grace has appeared to me and to you, and his grace will teach me to say no to unrighteousness. His power will give me the ability to follow his commands, but it requires the emptying of you so that you can be filled. Let us stand your feet. Has failure been your undertaker? What has defined your life? If you ended Peter's life when Jesus' life was ended and you didn't hear anything else, you have a sad story of a man who tried very hard and came up woefully short. Maybe that's your story. But Peter's life didn't end there. He was crucified with Christ, so when Christ rose from the dead, the first thing that he did was restore his friend, Peter. He came to him in the midst of his failure, and he spoke loving words to him. And three times he reassured him. Peter went on in the power of God to do great things. You're going to leave this building, and what you go on to do will depend upon your response to this voice. Many people heard the teachings of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke says that the leaders rejected God's purpose for their lives. Will you receive God's purpose for your life today? What are you relying on? 
What is your confidence based on? Do you love the Lord? Are you fearful? My heart is that you would be daring. My heart is that you would run to the mercy of God. In just a second, we're going to pray.